Hello there, and welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. For the past 17 years, Becky Dufresne has served Cedarville University students through her role in the registrar's office. Becky loves working with students, but this opportunity could have been curtailed when she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Through this unsettling time, Becky remained true to her faith in Jesus and trusted him with the outcome. Today, Becky is back working full-time at Cedarville and loves every minute of serving the needs of the campus community, especially those from students. Now here's your host, Mark Weinstein. Thank you, Sarah, for the introduction. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Weinstein, and welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. Today on the program, I'm talking with Becky Dufresne, Associate Registrar at Cedarville University and a survivor of a brain tumor, which we will discuss at length today on the podcast. Becky grew up in Vermont and graduated from the University of Vermont in 1999 with a degree in physical education. Interestingly, though, the day after she graduated, she moved to Montana. Well, maybe we'll figure out why that happened. In 2004, Becky relocated to Ohio where she could be closer to her sister, Julie Deerdorf, who works in the university's library, but also to begin working in the registrar's office where she is today at Cedarville. She's had a significant impact in the lives of many colleagues and students, and it's my honor to welcome Becky Dufresne to this week's Cedarville Stories podcast. Welcome, Becky. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to sit down here in studio. I've heard your story from your friends, and it's a great story, and I know our listeners are going to enjoy hearing from you. But before we talk about your story that involves the brain tumor, I'd like to begin our conversation talking about a couple of topics that some people may not know about you. First, let's start with your heart for missions, because I know at Cedarville, you have led three missions trips to Jamaica, working at a school for deaf students. How did you get involved and interested in missions? Well, it actually started when I was young. I'm the youngest of four kids, and of course, I always wanted to do what my older siblings did. Sure. Well, my sister, Julie, was interested in sign language, so that got me interested in sign language. When I went to college, uh, there was a dorm, the Living Learning Center, and they had different programs. And I wanted to live in this dorm because it had bathrooms that were like one-person bathrooms, you know, (laughs) not the big dorm bathrooms. So that was my goal was to live in this building. And my friend Paula that I went to high school with, uh, she and I applied to be in the sign language program there. And so I did that for a few years at UVM, took some sign language classes, but then didn't do anything again with it for a number of years. Yeah. Well, after working in the registrar's office for a couple of years, I thought, well, I'm I'm ready. I think it's time. I want to go on a mission trip, which I'd yeah. never done before, yeah. never led a mission trip before. So I met with Brian Nestor, who is fantastic, mm-hmm. and he connected me with the Caribbean Christian Center for the Deaf in Jamaica, and they have a number of campuses there, and we selected the Patrick campus. And so I took my first team there. There were uh, eight students over the new year from 2007 to 2008. And we were there when the students weren't there, but we got to work with the missionaries and do work around campus. So a couple years later, I was ready to go back again, and I took a spring break team there. So about 15 students that time, which was a big group. And we went, and we were able to work around the campus in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we kind of did like a VBS for the students. Mm -hmm. And that was an amazing experience. And then a few years later, I was ready to go back again. So I took my third team, which was only three students, which doesn't seem like much, but it's still powerful because we get to do so many more things that you can't do with a big group. Yeah. So the missionary had a minivan, and she took us to different places, an orphanage, 
a, a place where older people lived. Like we just got to experience more in that area mm-hmm. and just really come to know Knock Patrick and the students at the school. And they were just all great experiences in such different ways. So how did those missions trips impact you then and still today? It just getting to work with those kids who who couldn't hear and yet wanted so badly to communicate with people. Um, it, it just makes you feel special because they don't know you, but they want to talk to you. And so it's scary because sign language isn't easy. I don't get to practice it a lot. Um, I worked with an ASL org here on campus for okay. a number of years. And so we got to practice it. But it's it's not the same because you're not fluent. But those kids are so patient and they yeah. just love it. And it just yeah. touches your heart. Well, you're interacting with them and, and that's what they, they <laughs> that's crave. What they, they, want. They, they want relationships. Exactly. They're like everybody else. Yep. They want want to feel love, and that's what it is. Communicating with them shows them love. Absolutely. So perhaps, Becky, a more obscure topic that maybe the Cedarville community isn't aware of is your love of ice hockey. <laughs> yes. And I understand you were your high school boys hockey team manager. I was, yes. I did that because uh, in ninth grade, I went to my first game at the end of the year, and I just fell in love with it. And I wanted to get to go to all the games. And so my sophomore year, I made it to all but a couple of the away games because my parents weren't going to drive me to Brattleboro in the winter. Okay. So junior year, I said, all right, maybe if I'm the manager, then I can ride the bus. So sure enough, that's what I did. Got to go to all the games. Well, my senior year, we had two new coaches, Pete and Andy, and they were incredible. They had me come to practice. They're like, bring your equipment. I'm like, what equipment? So with my brother-in-law's help, I went out and I bought hockey equipment. And I would skate at practice and most of the things I couldn't do, but I would do some of the skating drills and I had a practice jersey and I would do three on threes and five on fives. And they were so patient with me and my love just grew. And so I played intramurals in the summer and my sophomore year of college, I started playing intramurals at UVM. Then, as you said, I moved to Montana and I didn't get to play there. But when I moved back to Vermont, I got into it again, played in a co-ed league, played on a traveling team. Got to go to Ottawa, Canada and play, which was incredible. And then I moved here and I, I couldn't find a league at first, right. but then I connected with one called Huff and Puff. Now you have to be 30 or older to play in Huff and Puff. Okay. And at the time I qualified and it's co-ed, but most seasons I was the only full-time co-ed on the team. Okay. Uh, but the guys were great and it's just such a team sport and I love being part of a team. And then eventually my brother-in-law who had played previously started playing again So we were usually on the same team. So we got to ride to games together because he lived just down the street from me. And it's just such an incredible experience. And it was so much fun. And I'm not very good, but nobody cared. No, It was just fun to play together. Yeah. And that's one of the casualties of your brain tumor, I learned. But um, one thing I learned, I knew you you enjoyed playing hockey, but... I didn't realize you were a referee as well. You refereed some <laughs> in college, um, yeah, <laughs> college games, fraternity ga- men's fraternity games, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I did intramural. Um, the fraternity thing was more. I also did um, floor hockey and broom ball, and so with broom ball, that's played on ice, and that's where the fraternities would come in. So okay. they would, you know, UVM drinking was a thing, right? Um, and they would come after drinking and play, and sometimes there would be brawls <laughs> and. The other rest would just tell me, stay back, just let it let it play out. It's fine. So there were a couple a couple of nights that were a little interesting, but it was a lot of fun. And it was good practice for skating. Like I became such a better skater yeah. from refing because I wasn't thinking about skating. Right. Because I was focused on the game. But that was a lot of fun. I made a lot of good friends doing that. What great memories. So do you have a favorite NHL team? 
Montreal Canadiens. Okay. Um, I grew up in Waterbury, Vermont, which people always think, oh, you must be a Boston Bruins fan. Right. That's no, what I no, 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 no. <laughs> Montreal is actually much closer. It's just a couple hours. You get on Interstate 89 and go north, cross the border. And Don and I used to go to games up there when I was young, and it was just such a good time, such an amazing experience. So even though they're not very good these days, you know, if you look at their whole history, they're a fantastic team. And now they just hired Martin St. Louis as the head coach, and I went to college with him. He was two years ahead of me. Really? Yep. My freshman year, he was a junior, and he and Eric Perrin and Tim Thomas led the team to the final, the Frozen Four, which was actually played in Cincinnati. And much to our dismay, we lost in overtime because the ice was melting. There was a hand pass, and Colorado College scored, and we were done. Oh, so wow. it that's an amazing memory, too. Just yeah, that's going to class with my earphones on and listening to the radio during class so that I could find out what was going on. And Well, that'll make uh, your, your following of the Canadians more interesting because you have a connection somewhat yes. with the coach. Yep, so, definitely. And for me, I'm not a big NHL fan. Mm-hmm. But I do like winners. That's why I followed the Pittsburgh Penguins and yeah. the St. Louis Blues. Yep. So. Yep. I used to be a big Blues fan when they had um, Brett Hull and yep. um, Curtis Joseph was their goalie. He was outstanding. So yep. that was one of my favorites back in the day. That's <laughs> neat. I like to turn the page and talk about the day in March of 2016 when you first learned that you had a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you heard the news, Becky, uh, were you shocked or did you anticipate hearing some Kind of sober news, even a brain tumor, or what was your reaction? So it was the Thursday of spring break, and I had taken my spring break day on the day that I had an appointment with my neurologist. And at that point, I had seen an endocrinologist previously, and he thought that what happened was there was a tumor on my pituitary gland, and that was doing damage that was causing some issues. Well, after some MRIs, uh, multiple, because it turned out the first MRI I had, I found out I was claustrophobic. (laughs) They just put me in there and I panicked. Um, So now I know how to do it right. I know how to get a sedative from my doctor and make sure I ask for music and make sure I ask for a little mirror so I can see out the end of the tube and I can make it through these days. But Mm -hmm. those first ones were pretty rough. And so when I went in and met with that neurologist, she's fantastic. And I'd heard a lot of good things, including from my hockey league, because I have members of the healthcare profession in my league, and they mm-hmm. all said how great she was. And she very gently said, "You, it's not on the pituitary gland, you have a brain tumor. And she said it's called a craniopharyngioma. And she explained it all to me and what the next steps were. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is just one more thing, one day at a time, one doctor's appointment at a time, one scan at a time. What's next? You know, let's let's just take care of this. So uh, she had told me that day we'd start with a, a surgery where they would go in through my nose. ENT would go first, and then she would go in and try to get as much of the tumor as she could. Yeah. But the tumor was bilobal, which means that there was these blood vessels that kind of were in the middle. So it was like if you stand in a doorway and part of you is on one side and part of you is on the other side, yeah. that's what my brain tumor was. Um, and she said, if that doesn't work, getting it all, we'll do a second one. We'll do a craniotomy and go through the side of your head and we'll get the rest of it that way. And then at the end, you'll have to have radiation because this is what they call a sticky tumor. And so you can't really pull it all off because it would pull off some of the blood vessels. And right. you don't want to do that in your brain. No. So I knew I would be following up with radiation. So I left there thinking, all right, this is what we're going to do. And with just... At that point, I was still playing hockey because I finished out the season. I didn't tell anybody because I didn't want anybody to treat me any differently. I knew getting hit or something, I mean, it was a non-checking league, but still, you get bummed. It wasn't going to do anything. And so I just didn't want anybody treating me different. So 
Um, I didn't say anything and just kept on, kept on going. Work is always busy. The days go by fast. And, you know, I had to tell people uh, that Friday morning, I told most of my office, but two people weren't there, uh, Melissa Robin and my boss, Fran Campbell. So Friday morning, I had to pull them into my office and say, I have a brain tumor. And uh, that was the first and only time in 17 years my boss has ever hugged me. (laughs) So it was a special moment, uh, which is fine. I mean, probably that's a good thing. That's the only time if it takes a brain tumor to get a hug. And, um, you know, telling people was the hardest part because when you say it, they look at you like you've been, your death certificate has been signed. You have a brain tumor. Right. And we knew at that point it most likely wasn't cancerous. They were going to test it, but they were pretty sure it was wasn't cancer. It was. Okay. So after the first surgery, they tested it and it was all good. But I just got very used to when I would tell people explaining everything to them because that made them feel better. Right. So it wasn't them making me feel better. It was my job to make them feel better, which uh, was good for me because yeah. then just talking about it made it easier. Yeah. So you told me off air, which is really interesting and maybe odd. But you didn't have any headaches. No, which you'd think with a brain tumor, you would have headaches. But that was never a symptom for me through the whole thing. I mean, there were times after surgeries my head ached, but I never had headaches. And it's something I just don't have normally. Mm -hmm. If I have a fever, sometimes I'll get a headache, but it's just not part of my life. Yeah. So So you mentioned uh, that you were playing hockey Mm -hmm. even when you knew what your diagnosis was. When did you stop playing hockey? At the end of the season. Our season went usually through late August, like there was multiple seasons, but when they took the ice out, we play in Kettering and they take the ice out in early May now and maybe the end of April. So when, when the season was over, I stopped. You haven't played since? I haven't, but not because of the brain tumor. It's because I was diagnosed with lupus during it and that just sucks out all my energy. Now our games were at like 940 at night, like they'd start at 940 at night. Okay. Now I go home and I fall asleep on the couch at 730. <laughs> so okay. that's why I'm not playing anymore. So the brain tumor at this point doesn't really impact whether you would play hockey again or not. Correct. You think you play hockey again? If you could play in the afternoon? <laughs> yeah, if I had a better ice time, that would be great. I definitely have to get back in shape again. That has been an issue, which is hard to deal with just because of just being tired all the time. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but I, it's always a goal, and they would welcome me back with open arms. Sure. So I would love to do that. There's been a lot of turnover in the league, so a lot of people I don't know, but still a lot of people I do, and they keep in touch, and it's amazing. Nice. Very nice. So if the brain tumor wasn't enough for you to handle and for your family to handle in the midst of six surgeries. Yep. Your father passes away. Correct. Talk me through the emotional pain that you were experiencing at this time, not just dealing with day to day with the brain tumor, but now your dad is gone. Right. It had to be really emotional. Yeah. So I, after two surgeries um, in June and July, then the following January, my dad fell and broke his hip. Now he had Parkinson's pretty bad. He had tremor predominant Parkinson's as well as essential tremors. And he just struggled. Um, and so when he fell and broke his hip, they replaced it and put him in therapy, physical therapy, but he just didn't want to fight it. And so he just was done. So they sent him home with hospice care mm. and he passed away on February 5th. Um, it was the night of the Super Bowl and I sat with him <laughs> and watched the Super Bowl when the Patriots came back and beat the Falcons. And then shortly after that, he just passed away right there. And um, it it was good in that he wasn't in pain anymore because he had just been in so much pain for so long. 
But it was frustrating because here I was fighting this brain tumor, getting ready to do radiation, and I just felt like he gave up. Yeah. But I wanted what was best for him and and knew that was that was the way it was. He had li- lived a full life, a tough life. How old was he? He would have been 77. Um, but yeah, so that was that was rough. But it's just another thing. Yeah. You know, you're in God's care and you face the next day. It's an interesting, interesting contrast that you just said, and I didn't know about all that. But you know, when I I see you and hear your story, uh, you're a fighter. You you're going to battle it. I'm a hockey player, and you're a hockey player. <laughs> but your but your dad wasn't. Yeah, at that point, he was at just worn down. Yeah. How did the the fight get instilled within you? Was it just hockey, or <laughs> did, were there other things in your life that? Led you to being, you know, I think part of it's being the youngest. I always had to fight for what I got in a way because um, I have a sister and a brother who are six and a half years older and a sister who's eight and a half. So there was a pretty big gap. Was Julie tough? Oh, she was very tough. (laughs) (laughs) She still is. No, she is fantastic. But I don't know. I guess it's just something ingrained in me. And with my dad, I mean, he had been fighting Parkinson's for a long time. And it's not something you can really fight because it's just going to get worse. And that's right. That's that. So um, maybe I got it from my mom. <laughs> okay. As I look back at the information about your tumor, you've already alluded to the, the, the sticky tumor and the blood vessels uh, located around your pituitary gland. So because of the sticky nature of the tumor, is that why you had to have multiple surgeries? Uh, no. So while I was having radiation, I had to have 30 radiation treatments, and I was probably through 25 when my head started leaking. Now my doctor would say seeping, but I said leaking. Um, I had gone for radiation one day and there's just this yellowish, clearish liquid coming out by where the incision had been. And so that happened to be a day I was meeting with my radiologist. And so he put me on antibiotics and told me to go back to my neurosurgeon before we did any more radiation. So I met with my neurologist. She did a CT scan. And as soon as she saw it, she admitted me to the hospital. Now, I felt fine, so this was weird, but at this point, I'd already been in the hospital twice, and I knew what I was doing, so I knew what food to order, what movies I wanted to watch, and that was like a vacation for me (laughs) to be in the hospital. You weren't fearful. I was not fearful at that point at all, and so um, she said there was an infection that would have to be dealt with, and what we'd have to do is have surgery to take out the bone flap that was infected, the one they had taken out to access the tumor, And then they would create a new synthetic piece and put it in. Well, that was in early April. And in May, my doctor, who was with the Premier Physicians Network and United Healthcare, split. So suddenly I didn't have insurance to cover this because United Healthcare wouldn't cover it with Premier. So we applied for continuity of care. And um, It turned out we got it, but there was some confusion and we weren't notified. And so it wasn't until September that I had the surgery to remove the bone flap. Well, while that was happening, um, she went to close. She took it out, went to close, and the skin was damaged from the infection. And so she couldn't close up my scalp. So she called in a plastic surgeon. Mm. So when I woke up from that surgery, I was told that they wouldn't be able to put in the new bone flap until my skin was better. And that would require uh, expanders being put in my head to stretch the skin so that the bone flap would fit. So first I did IV antibiotics, which in the process of that, um, we found out that I have 
an allergy to antibiotics and it causes my white blood cell count to drop. So we had to stop with the antibiotics. Um, but eventually I was cleared and I had surgery in December where the plastic surgeon put in these two kind of balloons right under my scalp. And once a week I would go into his office and he would insert a needle in and put saline in them to expand them. And so that would help the skin stretch. Okay. Well, then in early January, I noticed one of them wasn't feeling as tight as it normally does. So I went back and I mentioned this to him and he said, well, let's do a test. So he filled it again and midweek had me come back and sure enough, it was leaking. So mm. that was surgery number five. They took out two expanders and put one in. Now through all of this, because I am missing a piece of my skull, I was required to wear a helmet. So think about like a rock climbing helmet or yeah. maybe a funny bicycle helmet. Anytime I was out of bed, I had to wear it. So I would work in the afternoons, come to work in my helmet. I had a special letter. So if I ever got pulled over by the police and they said, why are you wearing a helmet? The letter explained it from my neurosurgeon. And I would work from maybe one or two in the afternoon to seven or eight at night. That way I didn't overlap with people as much because it was, it was weird. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. But my office got used to it and I got to be there and work with them still, but then have some quiet time to get more work done. So so you said it was weird and kind of awkward. So <laughs> I've, I've, I assume, you know, in Cedarville that uh, our campus community came alongside you quite well. But Absolutely. Still, what, what thoughts were, went through your head? Yeah, um, when, when you're walking through the hall to go use the restroom or, and you pass people, they kind of look at you like, why are you wearing a bicycle helmet inside? Or they say, nice helmet. And I'm like, thanks. Es especially <laughs> students, I would think. Yeah, yeah. They may not understand. Right. Because a lot of people didn't know. I mean, a lot of people knew what was going on, but a lot of people didn't. I mean, why would they? You know, students going about their daily lives and work and classes, they're not, they don't know who I am or what I was going through. And so I was just this person in the hall with a strange helmet on her head. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> so. I didn't know. If, if I had known, I probably would have done a podcast back then. <laughs> yep. But so. uh, with the helmet and knowing that a piece of your skull has been removed. I don't know mm -hmm. how people cope with that. What kind of ways did that force you to change your lifestyle? Well, I got used to it. I mean, I had the helmet for eight or nine months because it was May, early May, when I got my new piece of skull. And so, I mean, for one thing, it looked funny. So anytime I had to wear what they called a cranny cap under it to keep my head protected from germs and stuff. And so, you know, at night or when I took a shower and would wash my face and you just see and you look like an alien because mm -hmm. your head is caved in. So it's the front over my right eye and it it just looked bizarre. And so I eventually got used to it, of course, but, you know, you just know you look weird. Um, but the the helmet, you couldn't tell with the helmet. So that wasn't too big of a deal. And I got used to just being careful. Don't tell my neurosurgeon, but a lot of times at home, I didn't wear it because it got really hot. And so if I was home, I felt safe. Like I wasn't going to bump my head just doing normal things at home. Right. But I would always wear it at work and, and when I was out. So, And it even came in handy because that year for the trunk or treat at David, Dayton Avenue Baptist Church, uh, we went with the theme of hockey. <laughs> and so my brother-in-law and I dressed up as hockey players. So right. the helmet fit right in. And then my sister, Julie, was the ref, and their two Shih Tzus, Chester and Lucy, uh, they were in their cage, which was labeled the penalty box. So we handed out candy, and nobody thought any different of it. <laughs> so. Well, you guys are very creative. <laughs> yeah. Very creative. So you kind of took me down a, a thought that I was going. So you, you wear like a bicycle helmet. Mm -hmm. 
did you ever think about maybe wearing a hockey helmet? Because then, I mean, then you feel like you're back home doing right. what you'd like to do. <laughs> right. The only thing is my hockey helmet was probably had a lot of germs in it. So that <laughs> wouldn't have been safe for my head. But but yeah, that would definitely have felt felt more natural to me. And so your final surgeries you mentioned were the expanders and mm-hmm. that all solved itself. And yep. talk us through um, the final stages of completing your surgeries and the, the radiation. Um, what was that like? The last surgery was in May and I got my new piece of scalp. And uh, May of what year? Uh, 2018. Okay. So all six surgeries were in about 22 months of each other. Okay. So it was pretty fast. And I mean, it was great. And at that point, I was so used to being in the hospital. The two surgeries for the expanders were outpatient, but all the other ones, I was there for probably about a week each time. And so the neuro ICU is kind of like a five-star hotel. It's a big room, a wall of windows. You see the downtown lights of Dayton. There's a nice couch for your visitors and a nice comfy chair to sit up in. And it's great. But then once you get a little bit better, they move you down to the regular neuro floor, which is in the inside of the building and much smaller. (laughs) But you get a little more privacy, too. So the hospital was like my second home at that point. Um, I knew what to expect for the last surgery. I think all I took with me was my license, my healthcare card and my chapstick because I knew that was all I needed. And I turned out I didn't even need my license or my healthcare card. So um, it, it was just secondhand to me at that point. It was like going to work every day. So it just was a part of life. So speaking of life for the past four years, you've been working and living really a normal life uh, Mm -hmm. as you would expect um, or as normal as possible. Do you feel like at this point, this journey is behind you and, or do you see any more surgeries related to your, brain tumor down the road? Hopefully no more surgeries. I still am monitored by my neurologist. I used to have MRIs twice a year, then I went to eight months, and now I'm down to one per year, which is fantastic. But I'll have to be monitored for the rest of my life to make sure it doesn't come back. And the other thing is the damage it did to my pituitary, my hypothalamus, and my optic nerve are permanent. So I am on a number of prescription medicines that I take every day. I have pill containers for each day of the week. <laughs> so I wouldn't, you know, I'm an organized person. So you better be. I, I like that part, but I have to take the medication to make up for the things that my body can't do for itself anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, there's always a miracle that could happen, but if not, I'll just continue to take these medications and, and that helps me feel as normal as I can after the tumor. So there's always the chance, but things are, things are looking great. Yeah. When you mentioned uh, you, you're an organized person, you have a lot of pills. I, my mind goes to my parents. They're, yes. they're in their 80s <laughs> and 90s. I look like an old person when it comes to pills. <laughs> and you better be organized. I just cringe sometimes that my parents, are they taking the right pills at the right day at the right time? And yep. I'm sure you are got that all taken care of. So mm-hmm. you mentioned about uh, lupus earlier in the podcast. Mm-hmm. So after you went and saw 10 different specialists, you know, you saw your hematologist and rheumatologist. So you were diagnosed with lupus. Um other than maybe fatigue, how has lupus impacted your day-to-day life? Uh, the other major symptom of lupus for me is joint pain. So I take a pill for it. <laughs> so I'm on- You are uh, a senior citizen. I am. I take hydroxychloroquine for that and it works great. I definitely can tell the difference. So I take that and um, really for me, that's it. And it lupus impacts everybody differently. Okay. And so I'm glad those are the only two symptoms I have. But the hardest is- the being tired all the time because I used to be such an active person from working long hours to hockey to going places. And now 
you know, I have to keep a very careful schedule, make sure I leave at five, rest, take it easy on the weekend so that I'm ready for the next five day work week. Okay. Um, things like that. So it it definitely makes me plan my life out more carefully. So life is more of a challenge. It is. It is. But life is still good. So Becky, uh, as we move toward the end of the, the podcast and I, I hear your story, many thoughts come to my mind, including that's how much you've gone through medically mm-hmm. in the past eight years and how courageous you are. I mean, it takes a lot to go through this with the attitude that you've already communicated today. Mm-hmm. When I think of your story, my mind goes to Job and Job suffered a lot. Everything was taken away from him, but he wouldn't, didn't curse God. And you're, you're praising the Lord from this day back. Talk to me about the importance of your relationship with Jesus through all of this. Well, sometimes people think when something bad happens to them, why is God punishing me? And I never really thought that. It was just, this is something that happened, and this is something that God and I are going to handle together, because with God, all things are possible. Right. And if for some reason he decides this is it for me, well, then this is it for me. If not... I will take it one day at a time, do what I'm supposed to do, go to my doctor's appointments, go to take my medicine, whatever it is I need to do, just one day at a time. And through it all, you could see God the whole way. I mean, from the support of my family who Mm -hmm. took me to surgeries and doctor's appointments and radiation when I needed someone to take me because I was taking sedatives to try to (laughs) get through it, to uh, my Cedarville family who sent cards and meals and flowers and my hockey family who sent beautiful flowers that Don delivered on his lawnmower, which was hilarious, but so nice of them. They were just always there. And that was a sign of God. And they were all praying from people I knew from Cedarville who are now in Russia and Colorado and China, all over the world, or people who would see my sister would send out emails to a large group of people who had asked for updates, but she also would post on Facebook. So people she knew or Don knew from far away who didn't know me at all were praying for me. And that is what got me through. And I could always feel God's presence. Those nights in the hotel, in the hospital, hotel, <laughs> kind of like a hotel for me, but hospital, you know, I would just lay awake all night because, you know, when you're not doing anything, you're not, your body's healing, but I wasn't, tired. Like I couldn't sleep tired. And it was just, you know, I could feel God's presence there with me. Wherever I was, I was home because I was with him. I know you probably believe this too, but we're all given different roles and tasks Mm -hmm. by the Lord. And we experience different things for various reasons. And ultimately it's to bring him glory in all Mm -hmm. that we do. Has your journey with the brain tumor given you a platform to share the gospel with people who are going through difficult times as well? I hope so. Part of it, I think, is just what people see and how I react to it, whether it's the doctors and nurses in the hospital and how I react to, to it all, to the few people that I've gotten to talk to who are going through not necessarily a brain tumor, but surgeries or things, because when you go into it, you just don't know what to expect. Right. You know, what's an MRI like? What is this kind of test like? And I can tell them, and that makes them feel more comfortable, having someone to talk it through who has experienced it. And so it's always my hope that I have an opportunity to talk to someone who's going through something scary, that maybe I can help them feel better and not as scared about it, because I've been there and it's, it's okay. When I was a kid, I had this poster of a cat 
hanging from somewhere, but it said, God, nothing's going to happen today that you and I can't handle together. And that's what every day was. Mm-hmm. So hopefully I people can see that and and feel that too. Yeah. So my last question, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask is, so how's your health today? Good. I mean, the medicine does what it's supposed to do. And as long as I, I take it easy, you know, every day comes and every day goes. And hopefully we're making progress and glorifying God and doing, hopefully I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm sure you are. And uh, it was a joy to spend this half hour or so with you hearing your story. Thanks for sharing, for being courageous enough to do it and share it with a lot of people across the world through the Cedarville Stories podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by today's episode, share it with a friend. Please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And connect with us at Cedarville on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another inspiring Cedarville story for God's glory.